Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hello everyone and welcome to the History of Byzantium, episode 138, Abhorring the Palace. Last time, Nicephorus Phocus brought Cilicia and Cyprus back into the Roman Empire. His armies raided Syria at will and the city of Antioch now glittered temptingly on the horizon. However, today, we will base ourselves on the Bosphorus and deal with the problems being stirred up at home by the new regime. Nicephorus had ascended the throne in 963, and after that first year, had spent most of his time in the east conquering. He now returned to Constantinople to spend most of 967 and 968 in the palace dealing with administration. By the end of that period, he was a deeply unpopular figure. So disliked, in fact, that men began to talk of overthrowing him, safe in the knowledge that the populace would not rally to his aid. How could this possibly be? The man who sacked Aleppo, who captured Crete, who was welcomed into the capital by cheering crowds just four years earlier, the first genuine conquering hero anyone had seen for generations, how could things turn so sour so quickly? We need to explore some deeper currents in Byzantine life to get to the bottom of this, but let's start with the most obvious thing about Nicephorus. He was... A soldier. It's been said about modern politicians that their strength, the attribute people most associate with them, and which gets them elected in the first place, comes to be seen as their big weakness over time. The figure of strength who promises to cut the red tape and get things done is eventually branded as inflexible and tyrannical. The compromiser who will heal divisions and negotiate solutions, will one day be viewed as too weak to provide the necessary leadership. It would seem that Nicephorus was falling into this trap. Elected, as it were, by the people of Constantinople, 
on the back of a manifesto of conquest and military victory, who better to run the empire than the undefeatable bringer of victory? But even in the short space of four years, that reputation had turned on him. The Vasilevs had come to be seen as the army's emperor, not the people's. His prioritization of military matters was now deeply resented. Let's take a look at his policies and various incidents which took place during this period to work out how this happened. We'll start with the church. Tensions between Nicephorus and the patriarch Polyuctus had continued to simmer since the coronation. As you may recall, there were questions over the legitimacy of the union between Nicephorus and Theophano, and then the emperor had issued a law preventing gifts of land being left to Christian institutions. That piece of legislation was a classic example of Nicephorus's priorities clashing with existing privilege. The Vasilefs wanted land kept in the hands of civilians in order to support the army, but he justified the law by pointing to the spirit of poverty which Jesus had encouraged. This was always an uncomfortable line of attack given the vast amounts of wealth in ecclesiastical hands. We are told that Nicephorus went further, cancelling various gifts and subsidies which emperors had habitually granted the church. Again, an economy justified by the needs of war. This penny-pinching at the church's expense rankled. It was said that the emperor sent agents to audit the records of each diocese on the death of the sitting bishop. Any excess wealth that had found its way into a prelate's residence was then confiscated. That particular confrontation presents a fascinating fault line between the state and the church. If, like Nicephorus, you perceive the church to be too wealthy, and that that wealth is a sin, corrupting otherwise good bishops, then these audits are a good thing. They are removing these temptations from the church and putting it to use for the good of the empire. But of course, if you're a bishop and you don't really trust government agents, especially ones whose job is to find excess wealth even when there's little evidence of it. In that case, this would be viewed as a grubby shakedown. Finally, Focus is accused of demanding the final say on the appointment of new bishops, again striking at the heart of patriarchal power. The church was a vital institution, and as its tentacles spread across the whole of Byzantium, it was dangerous to be on bad terms with its leadership, something Nicephorus didn't seem overly concerned with. A smaller bone of contention between emperor and patriarch was that Nicephorus was making exceptions to his own rules for his uncle Michael Maleinos. When Michael died, the emperor offered generous funds and imperial protection to the ascetic's protege, the monk 
Athanasios. Athanasios had set up a new monastery on Mount Athos, near Thessalonica. It was meant to be an ascetic retreat, but with imperial backing, he was able to take control of the surrounding lands and establish a wealthy foundation. It was just the sort of ecclesiastical land grab that the Vasilefs had frowned on everywhere else. Of course, the powerful always make exceptions for their friends, and this wasn't a common occurrence in Focus's reign, but it was another point of contention, and I mention it in part because the establishments on Mount Athos are a major source of information for Byzantine life, and they survived the fall of the empire, still functioning to this day. In terms of legislation, Nicephorus did tinker with the land laws to make them a little more helpful to magnates such as himself, but we're talking about minor adjustments only. His main concern remained the army, and he passed several measures regulating the occupation of newly conquered plots, uh, which we'll cover in more detail in about a decade's time in the narrative, uh, when I'll be updating the maps as well. Nicephorus's lawmaking suggests that his greatest challenge was the maintenance of the eastern army. He needed to find frontier farms that could sustain his men during the winters. He had to keep those farms productive and legally protected. And, of course, he required a large influx of cash each summer for their campaign pay. That last concern touches on the most sensitive of political topics, taxation. Nicephorus is accused by every source we have of overtaxing his subjects. The most hostile historians make the traditional claim that he was inventing new taxes all the time. We always hear this about bad rulers. Interestingly, modern historians are confident that this is a fabrication, the actual making up of new taxes. The problem with smearing Nicephorus is that he never lost a battle and was well known for being personally pious. So it was impossible to claim that he was a blasphemer or foolish or clearly despised by God. One of the few avenues left open to a critic was to say that he impoverished his own people. However, it is true that Nicephorus was on the hunt for cash. We've already seen that he was squeezing the church for what they could give him, and he refused to hand out any largesse to the Senate, as the assembled notables of the capital were still sometimes known. Then he turned to the rest of the people. As I hinted at a couple of episodes ago, it's likely that Nicephorus instructed his tax agents to be thorough, which was never a popular move, even if it was perfectly legal. The emperor also decided to mint a new coin, the Tetarteron. It was a gold coin, one-twelfth lighter than a normal nomisma, but valued at exactly the same amount. So, by paying government expenses in the new currency, Focus would effectively be making an 8.3% profit. 
not that profit was the goal. The idea here was to make the government's existing supply of precious metal go further. Various suggestions have been made for the exact reasoning behind this decision, but presumably at its core, this was a measure designed to help pay the army. The people of the capital were not stupid and saw through the new coin immediately. They knew that the Vasilevs was trying to manipulate the economy for his own ends, and his ends were clearly the military, which made the Tetarteron a prominent symbol of the government's warped priorities in the eyes of many. However, one twelfth lighter was a bearable reduction, especially given that merchants rarely counted coins, but weighed them to determine their value. And as most coins begin to lose weight over time because of wear and tear, the new coins fitted in fairly well amongst the existing nomismata. Still, the new coin stood alongside a series of ugly incidents on the streets of Constantinople that turned the public against Nicephorus. The emperor was still insecure on the throne. I mentioned that he shipped the royal family out to the frontier while conquering Cilicia. Now that he was home, he brought with him a large military bodyguard to help keep the peace. Unfortunately, they had the opposite effect. The men he chose were largely Armenian, probably because they would have no contacts at the capital. But this meant that a rowdy group of foreign troops were loitering about the streets, drinking, gambling, causing trouble. When Nicephorus was warned about this, he dismissed it, saying a few bad apples were inevitable. The people of the capital were not used to a military presence of this kind. There were palace guards, of course, but they were often out of sight, while the regiments of the Tachmata had their barracks on the outskirts of the metropolis. These barbarian troops, who professed an unorthodox Christianity, provoked a xenophobic reaction, all the while being a visible reminder of what the people's taxes were being spent on. This toxic atmosphere exploded into a bloody brawl around Easter 967. A group of native sailors stood up for Bosphorian pride, and the Armenians responded. Civilians began rushing into the melee, and the bodies started piling up. It took hours for order to be restored, and Nicephorus himself came in person to stop the fighting. However, he was pelted with stones by angry citizens, and though that was treasonous behaviour, the emperor rather inflamed sensibilities by having those people hauled away and executed. Sometime afterwards, the Vasilevs arranged a military parade and mock battle to take place in the Hippodrome. Perhaps he was trying to give the soldiers something to do and to offer entertainment to the frustrated people. However, the display of combat was perhaps more realistic than had been intended. 
A rumour swept the crowd that Nicephorus was going to turn his mercenaries on them, as Justinian had once famously done. Panic spread, and many poor souls were trampled to death as everyone stampeded for the exits. Eventually, things calmed down when it became clear that the soldiers weren't moving, and Nicephorus was sitting calmly in his box, probably shaking his head in disbelief, says Antony Caldellus. A few days later, the emperor was returning from the Feast of the Ascension when relatives of those who died in the Hippodrome began yelling abuse at him. He tried to listen to their complaints, but was again assaulted with stones. He ordered the parade to head for the palace, but the angered citizens followed him all the way back, hurling missiles and insults as they went. Phocas began to fear for his own safety. Entirely understandable from his perspective, but perhaps he overreacted? Certainly, as a general, he would not have suffered any insubordination. But things in the capital were different. The people were used to freely expressing their anger toward the government, and when faced with soldiers instead of officials, violence seemed a natural way to increase the volume. Nicephorus's response was a microcosm of his reign. He ordered a new wall be built around parts of the palace. I've put up a map at the website. These defences surrounded the palace harbour and incorporated the main buildings where the imperial family lived. It's said that he had an extra bakery and storehouse built too. The Vasilevs was constructing his own citadel with private access to the city. He could control the empire without ever having to subject himself to the streets of his capital. The construction work required some nearby property to be pulled down, which wasn't a good start. But when the walls were finished, the population hated them. They felt a strong sense of loyalty and ownership over the Macedonian dynasty. Remember how they rallied to the aid of the Porphyrogenitos when the Lecapinae boys attempted their coup. Now Nicephorus was putting up extra barriers between them and their rulers. The walls underscored the sense that Nicephorus was not their emperor. He was the army's choice, and the city seemed increasingly to be under a military occupation. The breakdown in trust between the people and the new regime was exemplified when famine broke out later that year. Naturally, this was going to cause hardship and criticism of the government, but with grain prices fluctuating, the rumour spread that Leo Focus was making a profit from the chaos, shipping in grain at low prices and selling high to the starving people. We have no idea if that's true, but the fact that it was believed by some demonstrates the swift fall in public esteem which the Focus family faced. Surely, though, this is not enough to justify conspiracies forming against the white death of the Saracens. Famine and riots are a pretty constant feature of life in Constantinople, 
Just because we don't always hear about them doesn't mean that emperor after emperor had to deal with similar issues and their regimes survived. No, it seems that Nicephorus's government was provoking deeper resentments. His preoccupation with the military struck at the heart of the Byzantine way of life, and that was causing anxiety amongst more than just the angry mob. Let's take a step back. As we've discussed in the past, the Byzantine Empire was held together by its redistributive system. The collection of taxes in coin was the only serious source of wealth on offer. The government tightly controlled this. They gathered the elites of the empire together in the capital, made everyone bow before them, and handed out portions of this prize. During the past century, this system has flourished beyond expectation. The slow death of the caliphate and the expansion into Armenia meant that everyone was growing richer and safer. That meant that there was more money to spend, more people being brought onto the imperial payroll, more churches were being built, more soldiers were recruited. This dynamic bathed the Macedonian dynasty with a special glow. Basil, Leo, Constantine, via Romanus Lecabinos, had all stayed in the capital for most of their reigns, stable symbols of a world that made sense, and friendly mediators between all the competing claims for tax revenue. A Nicephorus focus was cut from a different cloth. Though he'd benefited from his state salary, he wasn't dependent on it. He had vast family estates and a trunk load of war booty to enjoy. And though I'm sure he found Constantinople a fine city, he had no intention of settling there permanently. He had spent his life on the frontier, and his heart was there. Remember, this was a man who greatly admired ascetic monks who abandoned the cares of this world and sought out the wilderness where they could be alone with God. His leanings toward that lifestyle made him a first-class general. Hardy, rational, disciplined. But spending your days in the saddle is very different to sitting on the throne. Where Constantine Porfiroyenitos had presided serenely over endless, tedious ceremonies, Nicephorus was shifting in his seat. Staring into the distance, he longed for his campaign tent. And it wasn't just temperament where Nicephorus differed from his predecessors. It was outlook. The Macedonian emperors had sought to manage the benefits of imperial expansion within the existing system whereas Nicephorus was busy opening up new worlds. He had never lost a military engagement that he'd led. He had seen his enemies run for their lives at the sight of him. He had heard the screams of adulation that only true superstars receive. It's no surprise that he wanted more, as did the armies he led. His eyes were fixed on the east and the possibilities that lay ahead of him. In many ways, this should be a good news story for Byzantium. The further their armies pushed east, the safer and more prosperous Anatolia became. 
But for the well-born of the Bosphorus, this change brought with it a threat to their way of life. The bulk of the empire's population lived in western Anatolia, and so naturally the majority of state spending went there. It was these families who reared sons and daughters destined for careers at court, and it was their networks that dominated the imperial bureaucracy. This class saw a threat in the Cappadocian magnate, Nicephorus. Where were his priorities going to lie? Obviously, in the east. So now all the best prizes and plum commands would go to his friends and retainers, not to mention foreign allies off in the mountains and deserts. And it wasn't just about the army draining cash away from the centre, it was the existential threat to the centre which lay at the core of attitudes to Nicephorus. Since the rise of Islam, Byzantine history has been all about centralization. Everything from the imperial mints to Greek fire and the Tachmata to the relics of saints have all been invested in Constantinople. The city was the one safe place in the Roman world and the empire's survival had depended on it as both a physical fortress and an ideological one. The redistributive court had wrapped itself tightly around the palace. The livelihoods and social status of everyone depended on their relationship to the court. So the appearance of a new source of wealth and status, a new star in the solar system, was frightening to those who depended on the status quo. If men could become rich and powerful without the aid of Constantinople, what did that mean? The soldiers in Nicephorus's army were the obvious example of this change. Their grandfathers had needed their state salaries to survive. But now, an officer stationed in Cilicia could imagine an alternative route to a better life. Campaigning with the emperor, grabbing slaves and shiny things building an estate in the borderlands, one that was self-sufficient and would leave a legacy for their family. No longer would he have to carefully curtsy at court. He would take what he needed and bow only to his general. It's not a great leap from that situation to imagine a permanent military takeover of the civilian infrastructure at the capital. How would the refined urbanites fare in a world run by eastern conquerors? Nicephorus's attacks on ecclesiastical wealth can be seen in this context. The church was an avenue that the elites exploited to gain social status and shield their wealth. By restricting its privileges, Nicephorus was closing avenues for advancement. In this time of anxiety, we receive a fascinating anecdote. According to an anti-Nicephorus source, the emperor asked the patriarch to make a major ideological concession to the army. Focus wanted men who fell fighting the Muslims to be automatically granted the status of a Christian martyr. 
the genuinely pious Nicephorus, may have been sincere in trying to honour the fallen, to bring into official ideology some of the frontier spirit, where he comforted his men in their hardships by pointing to the religious significance of the struggle they were a part of. Or he may have more cynically seen the benefits of attaching spiritual import to military recruitment and motivation. The patriarch completely rejected this idea. It was at odds with centuries of church thinking, which saw war as inevitable, but regrettable. To encourage men to murder in the name of Christ disgusted Polyuctus, and he naturally resisted a move that would see his office as another tool of the emperor's project of militarization. Now I should say that we don't know if Nicephorus ever really asked for this. It's listed as a grievance against him by a historian writing decades later, trying to blacken his name. However, the accusation has the ring of truth about it. The idea of making Christian combat sacred is obviously inspired by Muslim jihad. Leo VI, in his Tactica, wrote enviously of how the Saracens were able to inspire volunteers to come to Cilicia every summer without fail. And even better, other Muslims would sponsor them in their military service. That ideological commitment to war was something Nicephorus admired too. In his own writings, we can see he has Islamic-esque ideas about how an ideal army would operate. In the Preceptor, he suggests that fasting and purifying should take place three days before battle, and that a repetitive prayer should be said by the whole army while facing the same way on the day itself. So even if he didn't directly ask Polyuctus to change church doctrine, you can see how his regime was perceived by those in Constantinople. The fact that the emperor had invited the Monophysite hierarchy to move to Melitene was a clear indication that orthodoxy was malleable in his eyes. The needs of the conquest army were obviously more important than the values which had been enshrined in the capital during the centuries of crisis. Just to be clear, these are all deeper currents of anxiety within Byzantium, many of which found an expression during Nicephorus's reign. We are not told about these anxieties by our historians. They focus on the riots, the coins, and the new wall. But it wasn't a popular uprising which formed against Nicephorus. It was a palace coup. And before we get to that moment, I wanted you to drink in the many tensions surrounding the throne as the Romans came to terms with being a conquest state once again. We get a little bit of external confirmation for these issues from our Italian correspondent, Liotprand of Cremona, who was in the capital in 968. Liotprand recorded an exchange with some of Focus's men at court. The bishop was railing against his stern treatment and reminded his hosts that he had been kindly dealt with on his previous visit 
when the Porphyrogenitos was on the throne. The reply he got was that Constantine was a soft man who spent all of his time in the palace, but Nicephorus is dedicated to matters of war and abhors the palace like the plague. As historian Mark Witto puts it, the threat to the traditional political establishment could not have been put more plainly. Next time, we'll cover the foreign policy issues which Nicephorus wrestled with during his time in the capital and follow him on campaign one final time. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger, For the ones who get it done.